Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. I'm Justin, and I'll be your host for today's episode, the fan to create our pipeline with the Wild Sea. Today, we sit down with our guest, Felix, to talk about the Wild Sea. Welcome, Felix. Hi there. Felix, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as a designer and as a person? Uh, yes, I can try. <laughs> I have been designing games kind of from the comfort of my own home since I was in university where I started playing Call of Cthulhu and Dungeons and Dragons 3.5, I think it was, and wasn't entirely happy with some of the mechanics. So a little bit of homebrew was my kind of entry into the design sphere. I played a lot of games for years after that, dropped it when I started teaching abroad, and then feeling like I'd kind of neglected one of my first loves of, as a hobby, I ended up designing uh, without other people to be around and playtest, and that led me into learning a lot more about published games. And that's kind of what the Wild Sea came out of. Have you actually published any of your games or have you mostly just done homebrew? No, home, homebrew stuff and uh, the occasional micro game that I've played with friends. The Wild Sea will be my first big project. Any homebrew projects you're particularly proud of? Oh, uh, yes, there was one which we actually had a surprising amount of fun playing, which was called Congratulations, You Have Made It Zero Days Without a Horrible Accident, which was a game about workplace safety. <laughs> That's excellent. Why why is that not on itch right now? Because it's it still needs a bit of polishing. It's only been playtested with, you know, family and friends. And also I want it to have that kind of wonderful 80s workplace safety video feeling. And I don't have the design chops to make that work yet. Gotcha. <laughs> but it looks like with the help of, of some other folks, which we can maybe go into now talking about, you're going to be releasing The Wild Sea, and it looks it looks quite beautiful so far from what I've seen of the art. Oh, thank you. Do you want to talk about what The Wild Sea is and how that's become a reality? The Wild Sea is a game of exploration, I suppose, is the, the main focus of things, that takes place on a titanic treetop sea, uh, a forest that ate the entire world over the course of a few days. It's... A weird fantasy game, like at its core, uh, inspired by things like China Mavel's Bazlag series, video games like uh, Sunless Sea, and tabletop games like, well, Blades. It is a game that focuses very much on the concept of seeing new things and in-character world building. Because I really enjoy games like Dialect, where world building is a huge part of the experience but I also enjoy the kind of dramatic adventure combat side as well. I wanted to kind of marry those two things together. Excellent. Wow, Dialect is a great inspiration. I, I really love that game quite a lot. Yeah, I've had some great fun with Dialect. I'm interested in, you know, Wild Sea has some Forge in the Dark DNA, but it is kind of its own thing as well. Would you talk about what it is people do in Wild Sea as players? A lot of it depends on how you make your characters. There are people who go the very kind of combative route. They're corsairs, they're slingers, they rove across the waves, taking jobs from bounty boards, hunting giant squirrels and other weird creatures. But we've also had a lot of games where people take a, a distinctly non-combative cultural exploration approach, based more on trading, salvaging, cooking. People love cooking in the Wild Sea, which I'm really happy with. <laughs> So we've had entire games where uh, we've had the focus of the game has been, we're going to find some ingredients and we're going to make some stew and we're going to sell it. And I'm entirely happy with that. I was literally just mentioning on Twitter that uh, one of the games I would love to design someday is the official Delicious in Dungeon or, or Dungeon Meshy game. I don't know if you're familiar, but it's all it's basically Dungeon Crawler all about cooking, actually. I would play the hell out of that. So that delights me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Excellent. That sounds to me like it has a world building focus. Yeah, definitely. Is it kind of an exploratory game in a sense? Like what mechanics do you have there to allow people to explore the world of Wild Sea? The game itself is split into kind of three large mechanical sections, one of them being normal scenes for, you know, your standard role play, uh, one of them being montages to condense all that boring stuff into the shortest time possible. Boring but essential, I suppose. <laughs> but the thing that I most enjoy, and which most of the players I think most enjoy, is journeys, which are moving across a theatre of the mind-esque map of the rustling waves. And journeys run on a combination of good old-fashioned roll-and-see-what-you-encounter random tables, but also discoveries, where players can take the resources and charts and whispers that they've accrued and do some in-character world-building about what might be near them as they're on watch. And uh, a lot of the adventure comes from that side of things, from players giving the GM that spark of creativity, saying, I want this little bit to be in the world, and then the group as a whole expands on it and then plays through that scene. Hmm. Does that gameplay stem from any of your own role-playing experience? Can you, can you pinpoint a particular gaming inspiration for that, whether it be an official game or just a, a story you've told using another game? Um, part of it is the, the dialect influence, because I love how fluid the world-building is in a game like Dialect. Um, but a lot of it comes from an old 13th age, I suppose it's old now, an old 13th age long Let's Play that I listened to by Six Feeds Under, I think it was. And there, the way they ran 13th age was so focused on bringing character backgrounds and thoughts and feelings into the actual narrative. I just fell in love with it and I tried to incorporate it as much mechanically as I could into the Wild Sea. Beautiful. We'll talk a little bit more about actual plays and their influence on fan design soon. But for now, I'd like to point out and, and ask you about your characters in Wild Sea because I've, I've been perusing the art and as much as I can find out about the game before the Kickstarter is open to the public. But the art for your characters in this game is, I don't know if this is a fun term to use for your game in particular, but it's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you have cactus people, just as an example, just as one example. What is the influence for this kind of out there take on fantasy? So I read a lot of games. Oh, recently, <laughs> anyway, I read a lot of games. And I see a lot of the same concepts done again and again. And that doesn't mean you can't do them well. And I think some people can take old concepts and do them great justice. Uh, either by delving deeper into what they could have been, or by taking them in different directions. But I wasn't that confident with me having an interesting new take on established fantasy lore. At the same time, I have a real love for weird fantasy, both novels and games and tabletop games. So I thought if I could just focus on some things that might not have been seen before, or if they had been seen, were seen far less, I could have some more kind of creative freedom with it. Excellent. Yeah, I know there are a number of games experimenting with this kind of sometimes gonzo, sometimes just weird fantasy in the Forge and Dark space as well. Uh, a lot of people I see clamoring for a, and I'm not just saying this because of your accent, a fallen London Blades in the Dark game. <laughs> I, I think that someone someone could really 
get a big following, maybe even just a hack of blades that that is a setting hack in that setting. Your setting in particular and what I've seen from it in the art, which you've had some amazing art and we'll talk about that shortly. The chainsaw ships. What was the inspiration for for that form of travel in your world? So it's it's actually kind of a funny story, but also kind of sad at the same time, not to bring the mood down or anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's OK. I lived in lived and taught in Japan for about five years. And I was in a small seaside town, beautiful place. And you had these excellent forested mountains uh, on one side of the school and a, a kind of a short trip down to the bay and then the open sea on the other side. So I spent a lot of my time when I wasn't teaching, sitting in an office where looking out of one window, I could see this impeccable mountainside covered in trees and the other fishing boats in the harbour. It was a beautiful place. And I think over the years, those two concepts kind of meshed together in my head. But then they started cutting down every tree on the mountainside to shore it up in case of earthquakes. Mm. And I started thinking about, hey, what a pity that was to see this place that I'd admired for years being literally torn down. And B, wouldn't it be fun if nature could just win that fight? If the chainsaws could run, because there is something inherently fun about using a chainsaw sometimes. Mm -hmm. But whatever you did would just be erased hours later. So that's why I feel reasonably confident putting chainsaw ships in as one of the primary modes of transport. Not going the Fern Gully route. It's not like you're destroying the sea to travel through it. You're damaging it, but then it grows so fast it's back again in a few hours. Right. The wild sea is quite literally wild and, and magically so as well. Yeah, it is. It is a world where nature is in perfect ascendancy. Like you cannot conquer the sea. You can affect it for short times, but it will always win. There was a hint I got of the description of your setting. The idea that this is maybe in some ways, at least for the people uh, living here, a kind of a post-apocalyptic setting. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's. I've heard the term soft apocalypse bandied around recently. Mm-hmm. And I think the Wild Sea does kind of fit into that uh, niche, I guess, in that there there was a disaster. The Verdant Sea, the, the event that heralded the beginning of the sea, did destroy the majority of civilization. It killed the majority of people. And all that was left was those huddling in the tallest towers and on mountaintops, which are now islands, basically. Mm -hmm. So the old world has very much been destroyed and now exists in the darkness around the roots, all broken cities and drunk seas. But at the same time, the actual quality of life now, several hundred years after the Wild Sea's arrival, is pretty good for most people. There's abundant food, water, well, fresh water can be a problem, but water itself isn't. And there are dangerous, terrifying creatures but there are also people who are willing to go out and protect others. It's it's not, certainly not a utopia, but it's not the standard post-apocalypse. You have a lot of art that kind of so- somehow manages to accurately portray this this wild setting yeah. of yours. Yeah. Was it a priority for you to get art early on for your game? And how did you go about doing that? Yeah, I got my first piece of art about three or possibly four years ago before I had any intention of ever making it a proper project. As soon as I had the world in mind, I wanted to get a few bits of concept art. And I was lucky enough to find some fantastic artists. Killian was my first great concept artist for the early days of the Wild Sea. But also uh, Pierre Demet, uh, Omochon Sirit, they're all fantastic guys. And they have done some fantastic work on bringing the world to life in a way that helps me as a writer, as well as helps the players understand. 
Excellent. Would you recommend other designers take that route? That is a way harder question. The way I've gone about doing the Wild Sea is non-traditional, I guess, in some ways. Mm -hmm. As someone who liked reading new games, I realized that it was hard to hold my attention, even for the best rule set and the best setting, if it was just a kind of a plain text Google document with some tables in it. Right. And that's mm -hmm. not a slight on other designers in any way, shape or form. I was just lucky enough to be in a reasonably stable job and have some disposable income. And it's it's not always that easy to get the time or to get the money to get art early on. No, I, I'd agree with that. I know that for myself, I maybe haven't had the money to purchase art of quite the quality that you have produced. But I will say that it has been important for me to create my own quality play sheets and PDFs and stuff like that, just for my own benefit to feel like I'm doing something that will look good and and uh, attract people's attention. So I can I can understand that need to to have something more than just a Google Doc to look at. Yeah, it really is. It is it's just a problem of how things can keep your attention because I can be reading the most exciting game I have read. But if it is just a Google Doc, there's nothing to keep me on the page except my own kind of self-discipline, I guess, because you can enjoy something as, as much, you know, as much as possible, but you need your other senses to be engaged at the same time. I need that part of my brain that processes images to also be engaged. Plain text just gets kind of boring after a while. There are games out there that make it work. Microscope comes to mind uh, by Ben Robbins, but it's also very short. Yes, it's true. <laughs> it's a very short and directed game. Actually, uh, oddly enough, Blades is one of the few that I thought made it work really well, because Blades has minimal art and a large amount of text. But once I finally got my hands on the book, I devoured that book and I really enjoyed it. So I agree. There's, there's a lot of talk about which Forge in the Dark game has the best rules layout, so to speak. Some people really praise Scum and Villainy, which which I also do. But whatever problems you might have with how Blades lays out the rules, I found it extremely readable. Oh yeah, definitely. From cover to cover. I didn't have any problem with that. I think a big part of that is that there is a narrative thread running through Blades in the Dark. You're learning more about the setting as the rules are explained. And that's something I've tried to do with the Wild Sea as well. I've tried to explain some core concepts early on and then let a lot of the rules and the, the kind of basic mechanical text bring more of that setting out. And Blades was a big inspiration for that kind of writing. I think that's one of the reasons I enjoyed it. Beautiful. Can you talk more about your rules inspiration? Now, I know Blades is an inspiration. Where, where does that inspiration lead you in the Wild Sea? What do you take from that game? So the very first version of the Wild Sea, back before it was called the Wild Sea, mm -hmm. was a far denser, less narrative, crunchier game based heavily in the D20 and, and Pathfinder-esque rules, which are rules I still enjoy playing, but I don't feel that comfortable designing. And I was having terrible problems trying to get a more narrative flow into the game and more narrative-focused mechanics, because back when I was designing it, I just had no experience with that kind of game. Um... It was then that I found uh, podcasts and shows and the original Blades playthrough on YouTube. And it really opened my eyes to the fact that these mechanics that I'd been trying to invent and force into the structure had A, been done before, and B, been done far better than I could possibly have done it myself. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of one of those sad but also happy moments of like, oh, I don't need to struggle as much with this. This has been done. I can draw from these other sources. 
And almost overnight, this kind of huge wealth of extra narrative style games came into my life and they completely changed the way I designed. And that was a big mechanical change to the Wild Sea, but I think one for the better, definitely. Does Wild Sea maintain any of the structures we might be familiar with with Forge in the Dark games? Does it have a downtime, for instance? Montages act as a kind of downtime in their way. They are for for getting essential useful things out of the way and character maintenance and things. It follows a, a, a similar structure in general to Blades, but the focus is on different areas. So instead of uh, the preparation and those kind of in-between pull discussions, uh, you have the, the journeying system, which sets up a lot of the world. That is intriguing to me because a lot of folks are interested in how to do travel in Blades, which is, you know, without any modification, is very focused on staying in an enclosed space, right? Yes. Yeah. So what do you, what is the journey mechanic? What is that like? So at its heart, it's an interplay of two very simple things. One of them being simple rolling on tables, and one of them being who your characters are and what they have access to. To start a journey, you generally head off into the sea with an idea of where you're going, but not always. And your progress and a few other things, like the potential danger in the area, they're marked with tracks, which are essentially, they're clocks, but they're straight. And once those tracks are filled, you have reached your destination. It's very, very simple at its core. However, filling those tracks is a combination of people going on watch to look out for what is around them in the waves, and choosing the speed of the ship, which changes how you engage with different uh, events and encounters. Going as fast as possible means you will blunder into anything you come across, which can be incredibly dangerous, but does fill that track faster. Normal speed gives you more time to avoid and um, really take stock of situations before you wade into them. And you can also, if the situation's right, just drop anchor and elect to take a montage and have some character downtime. This actually brings up a question I didn't I didn't think to even ask originally when you talked about dialect, but does the Wild Sea have rolling? Does it have dice? Yeah, the Wild Sea does have dice. Okay. Again, it's a it's a similar kind of dice pool to blades. It's got that six, okay. four, five, three, two, one split. Mm -hmm. But it's simplified in in some ways. You draw from the environment and from what's in your character sheet to make your dice pool. And then if in situations that are difficult, uh, instead of reducing the number of dice in your pool, you cut a number of results, starting with the highest after you've rolled. It's uh, a mechanic that I'm kind of weirdly proud of because I went into it with a goal in mind and hearing other people play the game, that goal has been achieved. And it's very rare I can say that was something I've made. If the dice are cut after you've rolled, mm -hmm. you see what you would have got. You see what's been snatched away from you. If you had that six and then you cut it, you see that six physically on the table and you feel that I was so close feeling. And uh, yeah, it's cruel, maybe, but it works. Excellent. To disclose to the audience, um, one of our co-hosts, Ray, is publishing your game under Mythopia. Yep. He's not here today, but he is kind of an unofficial co-host as he has provided me a number of, of questions that I think some of which I, I would like to ask you. And one is to play on what you just said. You've split up your character creation yes. into, into something, bloodlines, backgrounds, and aspects. Would you talk about that and why you've done that? I love point-by as far as character creation goes, uh, but I am terrible at making point-by systems. I wanted to have something which was what elements I could take from point-by. So you are essentially choosing to slot together three different disciplines. Your bloodline, which is what you are, 
your origins, which is where you're from, and your post, which is what you do on the ship. And your choices from within those three larger choices, they, they make most of your character. It just seemed like a good way to have people who weren't nailed down to one specific concept, I guess. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the character interaction, uh, especially with the world, is based around uh, what is the same as others and what is different from others. There's a, a big kind of culture clash slash assimilation theme to some of the encounters we've had so far. And if you can find those similarities and also play off those differences, you can get a lot done narratively. Interesting. I'm really enjoying the different ways in which creators have kind of split up the character creation. We recently had an interview with Eric of Brinkwood, a very successful Kickstarter. And we also talked to Jason of Sig City of Blades. And both of them have a route to character creation that kind of splits up aspects of your character into narrative decisions that also allows people to kind of construct a character very quickly. In the Wild Sea, is that a focus at all? Do, if, if we pick from these various options, can we end up with a character that maybe has some random elements to it? Or is it is it more thoughtful than that? I suppose part of it depends on how you want to play it. Mm -hmm. I have had people who just slam their finger down on the page and take whatever they come across. And that's, you know, an entirely valid way to make a character. But I, I tend to think of it similar to the old Burning Wheel Life Path style system. Right. Where you, you set out that bloodline, like that is what you are, and that's the very first thing. And I think of that as childhood. And then you've got your origin. How did you grow up? How did your environment affect you? What did you learn from it? And then finally your post, when you actually finally got out on the waves, what have you learned from that? So it's much simpler, of course, but it's, um, it's taking you through early life and out into the wild. Felix, you mentioned getting into Blades through an actual play. I believe you're referring to the Blood Letters campaign. Yes. Is that ring a bell? Yeah. Yeah. I feel a lot of folks actually maybe got their their first taste of Blades with that campaign. As I believe it was being done through the the playtest of Blades. So for folks who were who were just in on the Kickstarter before the game was released, that was a, that was a big source of info for like how the game might be played. And I remember watching that and seeing that there was design happening in front of our eyes. They would change the rules every few episodes or so. Yeah, that's one of the things I loved about it, actually. Yeah, yeah, that was really cool. What did you really love most about that campaign? And do you do you have any other actual plays that you follow or would recommend for folks? You actually, you've, you've just hit on the thing I enjoyed the most. Like, the story was great, but seeing the game itself develop, mm -hmm. partly in response to, obviously, playtesting in general, but also in response to how the game is being played live, uh, seeing those rules and mechanics behind it being changed, that was a real insight the design process that I'd never had for any of the game. And it was really valuable, I think. In terms of other things, the Magpies did a, or possibly are still doing, I've been quite busy recently, so I haven't kept up on a lot of these <laughs> things, but they did a, a fantastic mini Blades campaign thing. I think I've listened mm -hmm. up to the second season, I think. I don't know if they've done more. I believe that they're still going. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And yes, everyone I know who, who is a fan of the Magpies you know, recommends them with the highest of regard. And for anyone interested in Forge and Dark Games, I definitely recommend that that podcast, among others. Yeah, definitely. What is it that you look for in an actual play, personally? That's kind of a hard question. Partly it is... Maybe it sounds bad, but the, the quality of the roleplay, because mm -hmm. I can hear people play games from a variety of sources, but I don't just want to hear someone play a game. I want to hear people really getting into 
a game, really experiencing it, really kind of going with the flow of the narrative. It's as much about hearing the mechanics being played out and seeing people's characters as it is the actual thrust of the story. In fact, the thrust of the story is probably more important for me. I mean, I think a lot of people would agree with you. We know that the most popular actual play out there is Critical Role, and that is primarily what they are known for, is is quality of both role play and the theatrics mm. of actual play. So whether or not you are personally a fan of that show, I, I think a lot of folks would agree with you. Do you watch shows on Twitch at all? Do you have any other sources that you go to for actual play, or are you primarily a listener? Twitch is a pretty new thing for me, um, so I've seen mm -hmm. a few, but not many. Normally it's through um, searching podcasting aggregation type services. Right. Or YouTube. Mm -hmm. I've watched a lot of things on YouTube too. Yeah, a lot. I mean, a lot of that stuff goes to YouTube eventually. Yeah, YouTube is the lonely designer's friend because as you're sitting there writing <laughs> mechanics and, and setting stuff, you just have it playing in the background and you can learn as you go. You don't have to have anyone actually watch your actual play. It's true. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Just toss it on YouTube. We actually have our own actual play that we've been doing that's that we recently have been posting to YouTube so people can check it out. But I wonder, is there an actual play of the Wild Sea? Or do you have plans for one? There's not, but we're actually doing one in about three hours from now. Oh, that that's your first episode. Yes. Yeah, it's... Um... <laughs> <laughs> it's from a, a lovely podcasting crew called Don't Forget Your Towel. They're, they're really great. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be my first foray into recording games and putting them out to the public, which is very scary. You know, your game is very grand in its scope as far as at least the art would suggest so. But I'm happy to have a designer on who maybe hasn't done another game before. We're planning on having more of that actually in the future. It's definitely the illusion of competency. <laughs> Like I am so new to everything, and people have said repeatedly, like the the design work is really nice, the art is fantastic, and I mean the artists did a great job. But as far as the design and the layout and everything else, that's just me throwing things at the wall until something sticks. That's just an iterative process over the past few years. Mm -hmm. So that sounds familiar. Yeah, when people compliment me on that kind of thing, uh, which is rare, but it does happen, which is nice. It, it really is the kind of thing I don't have much of an answer for, other than thanks. <laughs> Yeah, I'm no expert in anything. The episode title today is The Fan to Creator Pipeline. And we've talked a little bit about how you've been a fan for many years. Yeah. And I will say that I think that a number of Forge in the Dark designers start before they have played the game. You rightfully pointed out homebrew creation as a valid form of design. In that sense, you do have experience. Where do you think that your fandom of RPGs lies? Like where, where does that come from? Where does it, where does it live now? And how has it kind of led you to become a designer who's actually going to produce something? That's a tough question. That's a big question. I know. That is a really big question. One of the reasons I got into tabletop roleplay in the first place was because I enjoyed fantasy and I had a, a weird love of drama and it seemed like a, a natural marriage of those two things. But I ended up really enjoying the design side almost more than the play side, because playing is limited to the time you can get everybody together. And I wanted to experience and, I suppose, how can I say it, like ex both experience and meddle with things, just to see how they work, tinker with stuff, I guess. Even in times where I was bereft of another group to play the rest of the game with. 
So I think that that led me into going more into the design side and the playing side. And then, of course, when I moved countries, there was a, a massive language barrier to any kind of actual in-person get-together. So design became my outlet for tabletop stuff. It was just the way the world changed, I guess. There's something about design that I know for myself feels like maybe an expression of my fandom of RPGs. In the same sense that people will critically evaluate media, critically evaluating games and game design, especially ones created by self-described amateurs or indie creators, kind of lets you realize that you yourself could be doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's an important entry point for a lot of folks. Would, would you say that that's kind of how it developed for you? Yeah, no, I think that's true, mm -hmm. especially for me. As I said, a lot of the mechanical side of the wildy changed. But one of the few things that didn't change that much was the system of drives and Myers, which is, mm -hmm. you know, what your characters want to achieve and the ways your characters can experience the darker side of themselves. Ooh. And that was made in a kind of in answer to Call of Cthulhu's old, uh, it's probably a much older version of Call of Cthulhu now, but their sanity system, because I loved the sanity system, but I just didn't like the way they handled it. I love the concept, but not the execution. Right. And so with Drives and Myers, the Maya side especially, is, is my own version of the sanity system. And it's based on predetermined effects at character creation. The longer you're away from civilization, the more that kind of savage, wild side of your character comes out, and that can manifest in different ways. And knowing what might happen to you gives you a heads up on how you might want to roleplay that in a situation, and also lets you choose the the most narratively appropriate Maya to, to mark and then have to roleplay, given the situations you're in. So it's just that extra layer of personalizing a character. Yeah, it came out directly because of wanting to make my own sanity system, because Call of Cthulhu, great, but just not quite for me. Is that something that the players get to decide what will happen to them. Yeah, there are examples drawn from each of the background choices, the bloodline, origin and post, but you can also make your own entirely unique ones. An appropriate choice for something that isn't a horror game. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Although we have definitely had sessions which are more on the kind of horror slant. It's a, a game of very variable tone. In some ways, you could say that, you know, the Blade's stress and trauma mechanic is kind of derivative it's, it's a similar idea you know it's kind of derived from the call of cthulhu classic stress system or sanity in that case yeah but it sounds like you've taken it one degree further and kind of given players more control over what happens to them whenever they whenever they suffer their their last bit of stress so to speak yeah i'd like to think i have or at least that's what i aimed for there's there's a lot in it that is about giving players narrative control over things that a lot of games take control away from players like mm -hmm. for example there's no inherent character death mechanics they just don't exist you can fully mark every single track on your character sheet and you can have almost nothing left but there is nothing that will officially kill you until you narratively decide it's your time there is always a way back if you want that character to survive because death should be a narrative event not a mechanical one i think anyway is this Meyer system something you've playtested so yet? Yeah, it's actually worked really well. It still needs some fine tuning. Do you have any favorite moments? Yes. Yes, I do. 
there was a particular moment where a group was trying to escape from something that was tracking them, and they ran into essentially the, the creature's lair, and that caused one of them to mark Maya. And it turned out that one of his Mayas was to leave a trail of spores wherever he went. And of course, he marked that one, which massively complicated the game for them, but was such a narratively appropriate thing to do. And yeah, it, it just it made the story of the game better. It made their experience far worse in terms of the actual characters, but made the story better. Do you have any other mechanisms to kind of encourage that reckless kind of play? Blades has like devil's bargains and, and that kind of a thing. What, what do you have? A lot of the, the way we try and encourage reckless play is obviously that, that lack of mechanical death is one of them, which mm -hmm. means you can take risks and not be afraid of just losing your character entirely. But another is that because of the way the actual uh, setting works, there are times for you to rest when you need it. Mm -hmm. Winter on the Wild Sea is a place where people just don't go out and sail. You can go out and you can put your characters through the meat grinder if you need to, and then just weather the storm over winter, heal up as much as you need to. Uh, there's no leaves, there's the branches of brittle, you're not taking ships out. You can get back to almost peak physical condition if you need to, in a, in a kind of narrative way. So taking risks is incentivized because the downside is as much narrative as it is mechanical. Oh, interesting. I like that idea of using safety as the, as, the, as the impetus for reckless action, for heroic action, perhaps. Yeah, healing is not particularly fast, but you can take time out to heal whenever you really feel you need to. It might change the state of the world, especially if there's something time-sensitive happening, but right. you can reliably make things better for yourself in short bursts if you need to. You mentioned that in a few hours, as of this recording, your first actual play will be recorded. Yes. Is there anything you are particularly interested in seeing come from that game? Or do you have any particular worries? The Wild Sea is, I often try and describe it as either low prep or no prep. I have no idea what's going to happen in this game. I haven't planned anything. I have some vague ideas of what might turn up based on the characters they've made. But a lot of it is determined by their choices in character and the way the dice go when they're on their journeys. So I am worried that things might go horribly wrong um, because although I have been running the Wild Sea a lot over the past year, I am not the most experienced GM for the Wild Sea. That's actually one of our playtesters who is running games, you know, three or four times a week oh. for the Discord, which is fantastic to listen to, but also makes me really worry about my own GMing style because I've heard him do so many good things. And I just sit there like, I wonder if I can bring that same energy to my own game. I mean, uh, that worry aside, I think the benefit of having someone who's really excited about running your game during playtest is amazing. Yeah. A lot of people could really benefit from that. Really, I wish I wish I could. I need to foster that in my own game, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Rick, Rick, uh, our head of playtesting has been an absolute treasure. Like we would not be as far away uh, along the path towards this Kickstarter stuff if it weren't for him kind of bolstering and supporting and Aww. Just taking taking the time out to make sure that people who enjoy the Wild Sea can actually play it when I'm doing the more businessy side or the creative side of things. He has been fantastic. We have seen some efforts on the Blades Discord of trying to foster that community. And indeed, you know, it's these actual plays that we're running are part of that. How have you fostered a community around your game? A lot of it is thanks to Reddit, but not r slash RPG. We've had some people come over from there recently, and that's been great. 
But a lot of the things I have to thank the artists for, because uh, the Wild Sea is most popular in Reddit's world-building subreddit. People really like the art, and I'd like to think they like the actual world and the, and the words behind it too. But it's definitely the art that brings in most people. The first 50 or 60 people on the Discord, uh, almost all of them came straight from r slash worldbuilding. Fascinating. Yeah, they, they saw the character art and the environment art, and they just thought, yeah, I'm a, I'm a role player. This sounds good. I'll, I'll hop in. That is kind of fascinating. I know that's a very popular Reddit forum. Uh, rightfully so. There's lots of cool, cool ideas on there. Yeah. I know that as much as I enjoyed it for some time before I started creating, I found it really difficult to preuse as a designer because it was a lot of ideas, many of which didn't really like, weren't actually put into a game. Yes. That <laughs> like is, a published game. That's very true. I found that kind of frustrating to read a lot of times. It's like, you need to publish this. <laughs> yeah, there are there are quite a few projects, quite a few projects on, on world building that I've read and thought, I would play this game and then checked and thought, but I can't because it doesn't exist. It's it's just a world someone's made. And it would suit a game so well yeah. that it's not there. Right, exactly. So I, I I commend you for being able to leverage that and actually producing something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I commend the artists because that's that's all them. <laughs> I see. Well, since then, it's moved to a Discord. How do you find being the head of like a Discord community? How do you foster that particular community and, and how do you make it succeed? That is probably the biggest change in my life mm -hmm. recently. The publishing deal has been fantastic and seeing more people come in is, is also great. Since I left Japan a couple of years ago, I spent a decent chunk of time unemployed and then a decent chunk of time working in a, a language school and having most of my social energy taken up by the kids there. And then the world changed in obvious ways and Discord mm -hmm. became my primary means of reaching out to other people, friends and new Wild Sea fans. So it's in, in one sense, it's, it's a relief to have an easy way to, to contact people and to have everyone naturally centralizing, which is, which is good. But in another way, it's meant that because most of the people that like the Wild Sea are in uh, EST or PST, and I'm stuck here in GMT, I've had to change my sleep patterns and the ways I, I engage with, with life in general. Uh, because I need to be up and awake and ready to answer questions or suggest things or you know, do whatever needs to be done uh, on a, in a very different time zone to the one I'm used to. Mm. It's stressful. But the good things that have come of it are worth the stress, definitely. Excellent. And coming from that, how have you found working with a publisher, Mythopia in this case, and what are they adding to your project? It's been great. We try and go for as much transparency as possible. Because mm -hmm. of the, the life I lead job-wise, or led, again, up until recently job-wise, the concept of having any kind of space where I could... Uh, have things delivered or being able to get in touch with printers or binders. All that stuff was completely beyond me. Yeah. And the publisher has that stuff locked down. So I can focus on the more community and design aspects and leave a lot of the business stuff to the publisher, which suits me perfectly because I am absolutely clueless. I commend you for reaching out on that. A lot of folks, you know, don't don't have the how shall I say they don't have the bravery to kind of reach out and ask for help in that regard when when you could be publishing your thing once again. Yeah, <laughs> you you could be publishing it and you probably should if you if you can. Well, Ray and I Ray and I met in a, a very I, I think we like to say it's fate, whether we actually mm -hmm. believe it is fate or not. We like to say that way. Aw, 
He was he was a playtester before I knew who he was at all. Oh. I was running open playtests for the first time, and he turned up. He played a fantastic game with another a playtester. It was just the two of them and, and me. They hunted out some ants. They brined them. They argued with a street seller. They made soup. They sold it. They had their soup stolen by urchins. They chased urchins and had this this weird marketplace rooftop chase thing going on. It was a, it was a really fun game that didn't focus on the kind of traditional <laughs> con- combat side of things, uh, which I loved. And then Beautiful. I I thanked them, uh, in, including Ray, and we went our separate ways. And it was about a month later, maybe, that I was reading another Discord that I'm part of, and, and Ray is also part of, and I realised that he wasn't just Ray, that guy that playtested the world for me, he was Ray from Mythopia, who published Glow, which was a comic that was mm-hmm. one of the direct inspirations for the sea itself. It's a, a comic that got me into uh, conscripting, which is one of the things I love to do. And so I, I kind of had a little fanboy moment and got back in touch and said, your, your comic really helped inspire me. Thank you so much. And, you know, and then we just got talking from there and he, he brought up the possibility, the possibility of publishing and it all, yeah, all happened from there. That's beautiful. Yeah. Is Mythopia doing any of the art for your game or is that handled by outside artists? No, I, I handled the art stuff myself, mm-hmm. which is... Also a learning curve, because I've had artists I've worked with for years on the project, but then recently we picked up uh, another one, possibly two, to do some uh, logo designs and some more creature art. Yeah, the art side is is one of the things I like the most, actually, in design, because having art there can inform not only the, the setting design, but the mechanical design too. Beautiful. Yeah, I would recommend, you know, especially if it's, you're just publishing a small game, Look into how you can do that yourself, but for a big project like this, especially whenever you're jumping right into it, definitely look into small publishers like Mythopia, etc. Not just Evil Hat. More people than just Evil Hat publish <laughs> Blades in the Dark games. In fact, I think at this point they're a minority of the Blades in the Dark games published. Maybe just barely. Yeah, it makes a lot of logistical sense to look into a, a larger publisher sometimes. Oh, sure. Because I, I have problems getting mail delivered to a place, so getting hundreds of books delivered after a printing run is... <laughs> It's a it's a much bigger thing than I could handle, really. Yes. Yeah, just listen to more uh, TTRPG podcasts to learn about the trials and tribulations of Kickstarter yes. uh, and, and running one yourself. Maybe we'll cover that on our own show at some point. <laughs> but for now, we're happy to have you on to attest to it. So I want to thank you, Felix, for joining us today. And for all your insights into the Wild Sea, I'm looking forward to the Kickstarter. Yeah, no problem at all. If our listeners want to learn more about your game and the Kickstarter, where can they go? The best place is probably the official website, thewildsea.co.uk. Our pinned post on there has links to the Discord, to the Kickstarter, everything you could really need. You can also go to the Mythopia website. They have their own Wild Sea page too. Anything else you'd like to plug? Anything at all? Okay, one thing. Belly of the Beast, which is an amazing setting-driven game from, what, four or five years ago now, published by Sigilstone, I believe. Yeah. And that was that was another huge inspiration because it really got me thinking about how can the mechanics draw directly from setting. Fantastic game. We'll never miss the opportunity to talk it up. More people should play Belly of the Beast. Yeah, that was another really weird but cool setting. It takes place all inside a big monster, right? Yeah, it's just, it's such an, such an original setting and it works so well. And it seems like the kind of book you could really just port to whatever your favorite game is, too, yeah. as far as how rich the setting is. It, yeah. It can be used on. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, that's a great plug. 
<laughs> Thanks. I hope the designer of Belly the Beast sees a few sales uh, as a result <laughs> of that plug. Well, this has been a great episode of Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge and Arc Games and their designers. Again, I'm Justin, your, your solo host for today. And remember, when it comes to design, we all began our journeys as hacks in the dark. Mm-hmm.